The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Our world can tolerate almost anything, can't it? Just as Peter's world of the first century could tolerate anything, they could tolerate all religions, they could tolerate immorality, they could tolerate abuse, even religiously, they they could tolerate almost anything except for one thing, and it's the same thing that our world cannot and will not tolerate today, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is risen from the dead. That is the one thing that our world cannot and will not tolerate. And we need to remember that because, just like these believers that Peter was writing to 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, you are going to suffer. You're going to face trial and persecution because of that truth. Because you believe and you proclaim, church, that Jesus Christ has died And he is rose, he is risen, and he is coming again. That is why the world hates you. The world cannot and will not tolerate that message. They will not tolerate that Christ is Lord of all and Master of all and of everyone. And that he, the Lamb of God, who came to earth as a babe and died a sacrificial death for sinners like you and I, and rose from the dead... Church, the world that you and I were saved from cannot tolerate those claims. And we know that. Because we were once in the world just like that, weren't we? We couldn't tolerate those claims. We would not tolerate someone saying, I am Lord and Master over you. You serve me. You bow to me. And that's exactly what King Jesus says in his resurrection. That he is Lord and he is master over life and even death. It's been said of our faith that the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, namely Christ, came into nature, into human nature. And he descended into his own universe and rose again, bringing nature up with him. And it is precisely one great miracle if you take, and if you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. Church, what is the most Christian thing in the world is that God became man. He died in our place and he rose again. And he is gone, as we just sang, to prepare a place for his people. And he is coming again. Amen? Amen. That's the one thing that our world will not tolerate. And yet that is exactly what happened. We live in a broken world, don't we? decaying at every point, and yet we are those who can say, as Peter says in the opening of our text, blessed be God. We bless God because we believe 
And we believe because he has caused us to believe. He loved me ere I knew him. He loved me before I knew him. And he has opened our eyes. He's opened our eyes to see our sin and to see the the brokenness of our world and the world system. And we believe and we say blessed be God and that he is risen and he is risen indeed. And the suffering that the believers were going to encounter, that they were going to encounter, and that you and I will surely encounter as we've seen in our world and even the last couple of weeks in our own country as believers were mowed down in a Christian school because of their faith, so will you and I. And church, the world doesn't owe us anything. We expect it. If our Savior suffered, so will we. We will. But we have the hope of the resurrection even if we are mowed down for the faith. We will rise. Amen. We will rise because Christ has risen from the dead. Peter wanted to remind these believers that these pressures that we face, that we will face, are normal. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Are we grieved by various trials? We are. We are. Some subtly, some not so subtle. But we are grieved by trials of various kinds and they are normal. And Peter speaks of these sufferings in very normal ways. <laughs> Peter knew that these dear saints had never seen the Lord. Think of that. Peter had been with the Lord. But these believers had never known the Lord. They weren't face to face with Jesus like he had. And they might be tempted to think, well, sure, Peter, easy for you to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, 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 you were with him. Of course you can say that. You were with the Lord, but, but my kids, they go to a Christian school too. The world doesn't care about us. And that's right, nor did they care about our master You might think, well, that's easy for you to say, Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed. We should rejoice in him. But you don't have to deal with the polytheism of Mormonism and and the claims of Catholicism and, and the sexual revolution that's on our hands. But wait a second. Yes, he did. He had all of those things, the same and more. But here's the thing, church. Every person confused about their identity, concerned about wars, consumed with politics, or crushed with guilt or fear, they need the same gospel, the same news that Peter delivered to these believers, these saints, in our passage today. They need the same gospel, and so that's exactly what Peter did. He preached to them the gospel of the risen Lord, and that's what I want to do with you this morning, is open to you this passage, this resurrection morning, to do what Peter did when he took up his pen 30 years after the Lord Jesus had ascended into heaven. And this morning, 
Peter will stagger us with the vast and glorious results of Christ's resurrection. And so what are they? What are the glorious results and the benefits of the resurrection that we get as those who, like Peter's audience, had never known the Lord face to face? But we believe. And church, I I must confess, I need you to pray for me. My voice is weak in the moment, and so I'm going to take a drink of water, just so you all know what I'm doing here. We're all on the same page. There we go. Please pray for me that I'd be a blessing to you as we open God's word and, and that my voice would hold out. What did Christ accomplish for his beleaguered people? Those who were struck with and encounter trials of various kinds. What are they? What are these staggering and glorious results? Well, here's the first that we'll see in our text this morning. We have been born again. Look at verse 3 of our text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's another way of saying He is risen. He is risen indeed, right? Blessed be God. Blessed be God. But why is He blessed? Why is He to be blessed and to be praised and to be given thanks? Why is our God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be blessed? The first is this. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Church, if you are believing in the resurrected Christ, it is only because you have been born again. What does it mean to be born again or to be born anew? Well, it's not, certainly not something that we take credit for. Have you ever met a baby who took credit for being born? No. Uh, we just had a baby. Baby Paul was born to the Altertons, almost 10 pounds. He's not here today, is he, Nathan? Uh, but baby Paul, when he came out, didn't say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I uh, appreciate everything that you've done for me, but uh, I really did this myself. Uh, no, he was born. It happened to him, whether he wanted it to happen or not. Now, when we are born again, God overpowers our will to sin and to rebel against God, and he gives us a new will. He causes us to believe. He causes there to be what was not there before. Belief. He gives life where where there was only death. And this is why why the Lord Jesus used this terminology with Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be what? Born again. It happens to you. It doesn't happen by you. No, it's God who has secured new life for the elect that Peter describes in verses 1 and 2. Another big word for being born again is to be regenerated. To be brought to life. But what does Peter mean by we have been born anew or born again? Well, John chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, in that same text we're Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. He says this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, the spirit must bring your dead spirit to life. That's what must happen in you. 
in order to see the kingdom of God. And so here's the question. Can you do that yourself? The answer is no. You're helpless. You're hopeless. I was helpless and hopeless before Christ brought me to life. You must be born again. And this happens like wind that blows over a person. You felt the breeze this morning? Last year it was really windy out at the cross for our sunrise service. And it just happens. We can't stop it. We can't even predict it very well, although our, our news people are, uh, and our technology is pretty amazing. We can predict the storms that are going to come. But this is like what happens when wind blows over a person. It just happens. Christ God, through His Spirit, causes someone to be born anew. And they become a child of God. Once they were a child of the devil, and now they are a child of God. Like that. It happened to them. 1 John 5 verse 1 says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In other words, believing, get this, believing, the fact that you do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is the evidence that you are born again. Your belief was not of your own. It was not of yourself. God caused you to be born anew, and he made you believe that which you did not believe before but thought was foolishness. Amazing. Being born again happens first, and that's what Peter says. Blessed be God. He's caused us to be born again. Get that. He caused you to be born again. The fact that you're sitting here believing that Jesus died and rose from the dead and is coming again is because He caused you to be born again. He did it all. It happens, which enables you to believe, which is why we know that we are believing and born again, because He does it. He accomplishes it. Because if he doesn't do it, what are the results? What happens? Or what is the state that we are in without being born again? Why does Peter want to help fix these believers' minds on the fact that God caused them to be born again? Let me give you some reasons. Without being born again, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2. Without being born again, we are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3. What does that mean? That God's wrath is upon you because of your rebellion against Him. Before God saved me, that is what I was crushed by, was the reality that if I died in my sin, that I would be crushed by the righteous wrath of God. Without being born again, we love darkness and we hate the light. John chapter 3, verse 19. Without being born again, our hearts are hard like stone. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Without being born again, we are unable to submit to God or to please God. Do you believe that? Without the new life, you cannot please God. Ephesians 4, verse 18. I'm sorry, Romans 8, verse 7. Without being born again, we are unable to accept the gospel. 
There is no person who has ever believed the gospel who was not first born again and caused to believe. Ephesians 4.18 Without being born again, we are unable to come to Christ and embrace Him as Lord. <clears throat> Pardon me. John 6.44 Without being born again, apart from the new birth, we are slaves to sin. We are shackled to sin and it is our master. Romans 6.17 And apart from the new birth, we are slaves of Satan. Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, apart from the new birth, lastly, no good thing dwells in us. Saints, blessed be God, who has caused us to be born again. You're not a slave anymore. You're free. You can live for the Lord. You can fight sin. You can resist the devil. You can flee from him. And you can run to Christ because he's caused you to be born again. That is the first glorious result of Christ's resurrection that Peter wants to fix our eyes upon. The new birth is a wholesale renovation of the soul that is required for salvation. And without the new birth, we are hopeless. We are hopeless. Sin has so infected and corrupted mankind that nothing less than this wholesale renovation of our soul will do. And Christ, through His resurrection by His Spirit, has done just that in your life if you believe in Him. And so the question is, do you believe? Have you been born again? Do you know the Lord? Do you say, blessed be God, He's caused me to be born again. I'm alive. Do you see it? Do you believe it? How do you see it of late? Can you say, yes, blessed be God. He is working out this new life in me day by day. I see it and I love him. But what evidence of this mercy do you see in your heart that you, that you could stop today and think, God, thank you. Or maybe there's an area of your life where knowing that you believe, knowing that you've been born again, you need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. I surrender this part of my life that I've been holding on to. Give it to Him. He is Lord. He is blessed. He loves to help us and to change us and transform us. Church, if you are new in Him, He is working. And this is the first and glorious result of Christ's resurrection in the believer. Is that he has made us alive. Second, the second result is that we have received mercy. Look again at verse 3. Look at the text with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again. His mercy and we'll see that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that's really the, the theme of the resurrection. But let's think about this mercy that we've received. The living hope that we have, the, the hope of the resurrection was by the means of mercy. Compassion. Pity. The Lord Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came to rescue sinners like you and me. 
This is the motive of the new birth. And it's all because of the resurrection. Peter is encouraging these believers that are away from home like you and I, these believers who are exiles, sojourners, aliens, awaiting their Savior. That not only are they elect, as Peter says in verse 1, they were chosen in love before the foundation of the world to believe. Not only were they elect, but God's choice was to show His mercy. Mercy. Kids, you know what mercy is. When you see a, a little puppy or your kitten stuck, right? They're stuck. You know, we used to toss our kittens on my mom's curtains, cloth curtains, and, and, and she hated that. We knew we weren't supposed to do it, but sometimes we toss one of those kittens from five or ten feet away, and they're really good at grabbing onto the curtain. And they would get stuck. They'd get a claw stuck in the, in the fabric, and they'd be dangling there from their little claw crying for help. They needed help. They knew they were going to fall, but unless someone saved them, they would fall to their death. No, they wouldn't die. They always land on their feet, right? But we would run to them, and we would show them mercy. We had pity on them, right? We, had this, we saw this little kitten struggling, weak and, and poor and helpless. That's a silly example, but we would save them. We would rescue them in pity and in mercy, Now that's a sweet example, but think of yourself in your sin. Lost and desperate, wallowing in the muck and filth of your sin. Enslaved to lust and pride and jealousy and the fear of man. And Christ came and He lifted you out. He set your feet on solid ground. He wiped you clean. but you were still guilty. You still had to stand before the judge. And on your way to the courtroom, Jesus accompanied you and He stood in your place before the sentence was delivered and He was crushed in your place. God didn't just remove the wrath that you deserve. No, He poured it out on His Son. Instead of you, He had pity on you. His mercy was displayed at the cross, dear saints, for you. Do you remember His mercy upon your life? Do you remember when He saved you, when He began working in your heart to show you your sin and the sweetness of the Savior? Do you remember that? Because that's what Peter wants these saints to remember. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. His mercy was poured out on you. He drew you irresistibly because He is a kind and gracious Savior. Blessed be God. Blessed be our Lord. He took the initiative to relieve our sorrow. Not only did He feel pity, but He acted. This great hope that we have, we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. That is mercy. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. It was a gift of His grace. Him not giving you what you deserved for your transgression against Him. Our salvation is according to His great mercy. What a gospel. What a Savior. This this mercy describes 
him as perfectly having deep compassion for creatures such that he demonstrates this goodness to those in a pitiable, miserable condition, though they did not deserve it. He is a God of mercy, isn't he? And that is the second glorious result of Christ's resurrection is it was an expression of his mercy, not only his death, but his resurrection to give hope to those who would believe his mercy to die was not in vain. He rose again. And that's the third result of his resurrection that we see in verse 3 is this. Is that we have been brought into a living hope. Look at the text. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, which we just looked at, has caused us to be born again. And this new birth is to or unto a living hope. We have been brought into a living hope. What is living hope? A hope that is alive. What is living hope? We know what hope is, maybe. We'll talk about what hope is because we need to think about that from a biblical perspective. But living hope, what is living hope? Or hope that is alive. The New Testament idea of hope is very different from our normal thinking about hope. And we might say to someone, will the Dodgers win the World Series this year? (laughs) I see your head's shaking. I know, I know. And they say, well, I don't know, but I hope so. Or you might say, well, I hope they don't. Right? In other words, hope, as we typically think about it, is a desire for some future thing that we are uncertain of getting, of attaining. Right? There is a level of uncertainty. I hope I get a new car for my 16th birthday. I hope I remembered to turn the stove off when I left for our vacation. People still say that? I don't know. Yeah, I think they do. There's a, a certain degree of uncertainty of attaining what it is that you're hoping for, but that's not the way that Peter or the rest of the New Testament writers think about hope. When Peter says, and look, look down in verse 13 of the same chapter here, look at verse 13. He says this, Set your hope fully On the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does Peter have uncertainty that Jesus is going to be revealed again one day? No. He says, set your hope fully on that fact. It's going to happen. He doesn't mean we should desire it and be uncertain of it. No, the coming of Christ is a matter of absolute confidence for All the writers in the New Testament, they were certain of it. And so the command to hope fully or to set your hope fully means to be intensely desirous and fully confident that Jesus Christ is coming again with grace for his people. He is coming, church. He is coming. Another example outside of 1 Peter would be in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Let's turn there together. Turn back just a couple of books, maybe a few pages. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. As we think about living hope. 
chapter 6, verse 11. He says this, And we desire each one of you, this is the author of Hebrews, each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He'd been warning them against walking away from Christ, having tasted the goodness of the Lord, and not being like those who having tasted of some of the sweet things of the the community of faith, in the end abandoned it and walked away from the Lord wholesale. We don't want you to be like that, but to have the same earnestness, to have have full assurance of hope until the end. Until the end. And so we can define hope in the New Testament in the, New, in the New Testament sense as full assurance, full confidence, a strong confidence that God is going to do what He says He will do. And namely, that He is going to do good to us, that He is going to fulfill His promises. He's going to be faithful. He's going to come again. He's going to, be take, us, he's going to take us to be with Him where He is. He's going to eradicate evil once and for all. He's going to restore this world back to the conditions of Eden, yet even better. We're talking about eternal life. This is the great good that the Lord is going to do for us and to us. He's going to give us eternal life, and we are confident of it. Church believers, if you are trusting in Christ, you can be confident that God is going to do everything that he says he's going to do. And Peter wanted the believers to be sure of that as well. That all of the things that Peter saw and experienced firsthand with the Lord as he walked with him, as he was on the mountain of transfiguration and saw his glory, as he saw the Lord Be gracious to him as he denied him and then restored him after his resurrection. Peter wanted them to know that same confidence that yes, what I experienced, what I knew firsthand from Christ as a good and merciful king, he's really like that. He's really like that. He's really coming again. He's really going to deliver you. These trials and persecutions are working. And whether he comes again to take you to be with him in the second coming and raptures you up to be with him or you die and go to be with him, you will be with him. This is our living hope. And it comes from God. Hope comes from God. It doesn't come from chance. It doesn't come by hopeful wishing. And it's a gift of grace. Our hope is not defined by our circumstances, but by the Scriptures. And Peter says later in chapter 3 that it's a reasonable hope, that we are to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We're not just arguing, well, you know, this is what I believe. You know, take it or leave it. No, this is the gospel. This is the truth. This is the most real news in the world. Defend it. Proclaim it. 
Stand on it. It's reasonable because it's reality and it's worthy to be defended. Our hope is secured by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as we just read in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Jesus really rose. Because if He didn't, then we're fools. But we're not fools. Because Christ really lived and died. And the apostles really proclaimed and suffered and were martyred. Because Christ actually died and rose. No man dies for a lie. That's ludicrous. It's real. It was secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our living hope, and it's confirmed by the Spirit in us. Listen to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15 verse 13. May the God of hope fill you all with all joy and peace in believing. He's the God of hope. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The Spirit is the one who gives us hope and assures us of these good things to come. Our hope defends us against Satan's attacks. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 It's confirmed through our trials as we suffer and continue to rejoice in Christ. Do you know someone who's suffering? Who's a believer? Do you know someone who's going through a a difficult trial and who is clinging to Christ? Spend time with them. Learn from them how to hope in suffering. Your faith will be strengthened because they are displaying what Christ promised. That He would help us in our trials. That He would deliver us. That He would strengthen our faith. Watch their hope in action. And it produces joy. Brothers and sisters, we've been brought to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is alive. He is alive and we live for a risen king. He is not dead. He is alive. So that is the third glorious result of Christ's resurrection. But connected to that, our new life is all grounded and rooted in the resurrection. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins, friends. If, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you are still a slave to sin. You have no master but sin, but Christ did rise from the dead. If Christ has been raised, then all of your sins are forgiven and you can cast yourself on Him. And if all of my sins are forgiven, then God is not against me anymore. If all of your sins are forgiven, friend, then Christ is not against, God is not against you anymore. But He's for you. He is for you. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? That is our hope. Even if the whole world is against us, which by the way, it is, don't forget it. 
If God is for you, then who can be against you? It's as if no one is against you. And you can live with joy and persevere in trials. Because Christ will come just at the right time to take you to be with him. He did not spare his own son, listen to this, but gave him up for us all. And if he did that, will he not also give us all things with him? And then Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies and who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. How can you rejoice in your trials? How can you take comfort in your sufferings? Because Christ, who has suffered with you, is praying for you. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. This very moment, blessed be God. Amen? He's not risen and just sitting there twiddling his thumbs for the last 2,000 years. No, he's been busy. And part of his ministry is that he is interceding for you. He's praying for you, just as he did in the garden. He prayed for those who would believe through the apostles' preaching. And that's how a 2,000-year-old resurrection reaches us, and it gives us hope. It guarantees to us that because Jesus bore our sins on the cross, that God is for us and not against us. And it, and it declares to us that this Jesus who died for us and gave himself up for us as an offering for us is alive and present and caring at every second of your life. Blessed be God. As Peter says, amen. Christ was raised never to die again and this is the guarantee of our hope of our resurrection. But also, we've been given, number four, fourth glorious result of Christ's resurrection from this text. We've been given an indestructible inheritance. An indestructible inheritance. Look at verses four and five of 1 Peter chapter one, turning back. He says, we've been given hope, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And what is this inheritance? What is it like? It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it is kept. It is kept in heaven for you. It's an inheritance. What is an inheritance? Have you ever received one? I've not. Um, Maybe one day. But if you've ever received an inheritance... That was probably a good thing, relatively. It was a positive thing. Uh, Maybe you received a great inheritance. Maybe you expected more, but you got less than you expected. Maybe there was division and pain in your family because of the arguing and fighting over the inheritance. I've I've seen some of that on display. It doesn't always go great, but an, an inheritance is meant to be a good thing, right? It's supposed to be thumbs up. This is a good thing. An inheritance is coming. In human relationships, sons and daughters, they they get the estate of their parents at the time of their death. 
But we've been given an inheritance as well. Everything that belonged to those parents is passed on to the children as they carry on the family name and the family legacy. And in a similar way, though, though, uh, by nature, we had no right to claim it as our own. We receive as an inheritance all of the riches of the kingdom of God through Christ. And by grace, we become God's adopted children. That's what it means to be born anew. One of the results of being born again is that we're brought into the riches of God's family through Christ. We're adopted children into the family of God and we receive what we did not deserve. What we did not earn because we weren't a part of the family to begin with. But God has made us his own. He has given us his name and we get his blessing. And that's what Peter is saying. Dear saints, you've not seen him and you're suffering. Maybe it's less obvious now, but greater suffering is coming. You have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable. And it's being kept for you. It's being kept for you. We have become the legal heirs of the riches of God's kingdom. And it can never perish. It can never spoil or fade. There's no label on it that says perishable. It is imperishable. It can't be defiled. It won't fade. It can't be corrupted. Your hope is unspoilable, non-spoilable, non-fading. It's reserved and it's kept. It's protected. It's preserved. Remember layaway? used to go and put something on layaway. I remember my mom would put things on layaway. But if you don't come and pick it up after a little while, what happens to it? It gets put back on the shelf, even though your name was on it. At least I think that's how layaway worked. Uh, It gets put back on the shelf, and you don't get that thing anymore. They hold on to it for so many days, and it's put back, and then you have to start all over again. Maybe similar, you know, you pre-order a book that's going to be published in a few months, right? You know that the book is coming. You can't wait for the next volume of whatever it is. And so you pre-order it. And it's as good as yours, isn't it? You've paid the money. And unless something drastic happens and the publisher burns down or something, you're going to get that book. It's going to come in the mail. It's as good as yours. The payment's been made and you're just waiting for the right time when finally you get it. It's been preserved. It's being protected. But Peter understood That he didn't deserve these riches. You remember Peter. The one who when a little girl asked him, Hey, aren't aren't you one of those? One of the disciples. One of the men who was with Jesus. Just when Peter could have done what 1 Peter 3.15 said and gave gave a defense for the hope that was in him. He said, No, 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 no. You got the wrong guy. That's not me. It was someone else. Not me. Peter understood Failure. He understood walking away. He understood weakness in the moment when when strength was called for. Peter understood that he did not deserve the inheritance that was coming to him. And if anyone should have had his name taken away from the family tree, it was him. 
it would have been him. But no. No, by mercy, in new life, our inheritance is kept for us. And our inheritance will never perish. It'll never spoil. It'll never fade. It's being guarded behind the rock-solid reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a garrisoned gift that Christ purchased with his death and secured with his resurrection. It is a guaranteed inheritance of Christ himself. Christ himself. Blessed be God, as Peter says. And that's the fourth glorious result of the resurrection. But church, let's look finally. Number five, at the fifth glorious result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We receive not only an indestructible inheritance, but a persistent joy. Verses six through nine, they they preach themselves. Just listen to these words. Listen to the words of the man who knew that these believers were struggling to believe. They were struggling because suffering was coming their way. Sin was a constant burden as they fought against temptation and wanted to live to please Christ, but all of the pressures of the world and sin and Satan were surrounding them. It was only getting harder. Excuse me, and he says, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. In all of these things you rejoice, but even greater in this. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And in God's sovereignty, it it is necessary. We will endure hardship as we enter the kingdom of God. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, your faith is precious Because the object of your faith is glorious. It's Christ himself. Your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what is coming. We're going to praise him. We're going to receive the blessing of our inheritance who is Christ himself in eternity. But then this. Peter knows. Yeah, yeah, Peter. That's good for you. You know, you were there. What about us? We've never met Jesus. I know, says Peter. But though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Why, if the world doesn't tolerate what you believe, should you humbly and boldly proclaim that it is true, church, and keep trusting and keep believing and keep persevering? Why should you resist, uh, risk persecution and suffering? Why would Peter exhort the believers to persevere in the face of trials of various kinds that were coming their way? Why can we press on in hope? 
It's because of verse 8. It's because that we have an unshakable joy. An unshakable rejoicing that Jesus has brought about in us. Because though you do not see, you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What is our persistent joy? Is that we love Christ because he first loved us. Our joy is knowing that Jesus loves us. It's that Jesus cares for us. It's that Jesus is praying for us. It's that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters and friends. Our joy is him. And we will be with him soon. We will. It'll be soon. Blessed be God. And this triumphant faith in the unseen Christ, it it brings about something. But listen first what, what John 20 verse 29 says. Have you believed, Jesus says, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Have you believed because you have seen me? That was Peter. right? He had seen Jesus. But blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is a sweet blessing for you, brothers and sisters, and me who are believing now. In Christ, who we have not seen, because what? It is evidence, it is proof that he's real, and that his promises are true, and that what he said he was accomplishing in his death and resurrection, the new covenant, new hearts that love him and want to obey him, he has done, he's brought it about. He's done it. And blessed are you, church, who believes, though you have not seen him. Amen, right? We haven't seen him, but we believe. It's the miracle of the new birth. It's the miracle of the resurrection. Amazing. And so that in the present, we have inexpressible joy in the midst of difficulties. Do you know that joy? Are you suffering? And if you are suffering, is there a joy that you see the Lord bringing over and over through the pain? Yes. But at the end of it, you say, Lord, you sustained me. You gave me joy that I can't explain. And if you know someone who suffered as they walked with Christ, you know that there was a, a joy that was there that is unexplainable, inexpressible, only brought by Christ. Do you have that joy? Do you have joy inexpressible though you suffer? But blessed are you who have not seen him and believed. Why? Because in the future, because of the resurrection, there is the great prospect of enjoying our salvation to the fullest in the presence of our Savior. In his very presence. Can you see it? Can you, can you picture it? I love reading our, our kids' books at Easter time, even though there's pictures of Jesus and we don't know what he actually looked like. But I want to be with him. 
Don't you? Do you long for him? Is there a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory that says, yes, Lord, I want to be with you? You love him. Peter wasn't a a weak, soft, mushy-gushy guy who's just like, come on, love. You know, let's just love one another. We love Jesus. You need to just have loving feelings all the time toward Jesus. No, Jesus gave Peter a rock-solid confidence through the death and resurrection of himself that resulted in displayed itself in a deep affection for the Savior that will one day be fully realized and satisfied in the presence of Christ himself. Do you have that love for the Lord? Do you love him? Would anyone around you say that they can tell that you love the Lord Jesus Christ by the way that you spend your money? by the way that you spend your time, by the way that you prioritize ministry and missions and evangelism, by the way that you speak to your children or your spouse, by the way that you love your church, can they tell that you love the bride of Christ because you love him? I sure hope so. And I know, because I know so many of you that I see God's work in your life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and I rejoice with you and we rejoice that Christ is coming again and that we will enjoy our salvation to the fullest in his presence one day. Dear church, we can press on through trials because that same king that the Jews and the Romans of the first century rejected and that the world still rejects. We can press on because he is the only one who can save and he loves to save and he has left you here, church, to proclaim. He's left you here not to be protected from the world and, and, and insulated, isolated from the world, but he has kept you here to send you and me into the world. To proclaim that Jesus is risen. And he is risen indeed. And only he can render death and sin and Satan and all other evils powerless. And he has done that. And so can you say with Peter, dear church, even through our sufferings of many kinds. As you experience them now and as they surely will come in earnest in the future. They will come, church. I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. He's my Savior. He is the only Savior. He died, He is risen, and He is coming again. Can we say that, church? Amen. May we say it with bold confidence. May we say it over against Judaism, against Hinduism, against all the false religions of the world, against the modern versions of secularism. May we declare that the true God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and may we walk in obedience in this passage. Look at verses 13 and 14 as we think about the call to action as we think in light of the great results of the resurrection. Peter says this, and this is what we need, church, as we go in the hope and the joy of the resurrection. Therefore, prepare your minds... For action. Be sober minded. 
Church, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It will be brought to you. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Church, may our love for the risen and reigning Savior result in joyful obedience that shows the transforming power, the radical life-altering power of the gospel in the lives of human beings like you and me. May the world see that. And it's all for his glory. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are coming. And the imminence of your return should motivate us to live for you. It means being alert, as we just read, being disciplined, focused, but rejoicing. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in you because we love you. Lord, I pray for any who, is, who are not ready to meet Christ. That you would work in their hearts. Lord, I pray for any who have said that they follow Jesus, but do not love him. God, that you would open their eyes that that is not a true faith. True faith that does not love and a faith that does not love and cherish Christ is not faith, not saving faith at all. But regeneration brings about this deep love that Peter speaks of. That though we have not seen him, we love him. We long for him. And we rejoice with joy and expressible. Lord, would you pull away the scales? For any who have never heard this gospel, O oh Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you draw them to yourself? Save them. So that they could see, blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, who caused me to be born again. And now I have a living hope through that resurrected Jesus from the dead. God, would you save? Would you humble us? Would you sanctify us for your glory? And we will bless you and praise you. You are worthy. Amen. Church, he is risen. Let's stand together and worship him as we close.